The reading tonight is Luke chapter 12 from verse 22. Luke 12, starting at verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, ooh, let's pray together. Loving Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your words. Then we ask that you might mould our hearts, that you might motivate our wills, that we might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't want you to worry about your lives. It is a bold statement from Jesus on an issue that affects most of us some of the time and some of us a lot of the time. Anxiety, worry. It's an interesting word that Jesus uses in the Greek there for worry. It has as its roots a word meaning to divide, which sums up what worry does to us. Worry often makes us feel torn in a number of directions. We don't know what to do for the best. We don't know which way to go. How do we deal with this situation? And because we don't know which way to go, we become paralyzed and frozen. That's what fear often does, doesn't it? Anxiety freezes us. It becomes difficult to do what might have been quite easy tasks before. Right at the outside of looking at this passage and this issue, I want to acknowledge that there is an extreme kind of anxiety which some here experience, that may be hard for others to fully understand. It is a paralyzing panic which comes from nowhere, that seems unrelated to particular circumstances. You need a panic that sets in, sometimes even in very familiar circumstances. Things that normally one would have done with ease, for some reason, we become paralyzed by an overwhelming dreadful panic of heart and mind. It is involuntary. 
The chest wants to explode. And I want to say that I don't think Jesus is addressing that here. To my mind and in my experience, I think that is a mental health issue. It is for me. It is a mental health issue that I know that I have, that I take medication for. It is something that needs the help of medics and professionals and the loving support, care and prayer of Christian friends. The very last thing it needs is someone to say, don't worry, Jesus loves you. Because we want to punch you when you say that. In love, of course. I don't think that is what Jesus is addressing here. I think what Jesus is addressing is the condition that almost all of us experience, even those who maybe have that more extreme form, which is the day-to-day worries and anxieties of everyday life. And there are plenty of things to cause that. Financial issues, job situations, relationship problems. We worry about children. We worry about elderly parents. Many situations we face where we're simply not sure what to do for the best. Maybe even the loss of a vicar causes some to be anxious. We're not sure what the future holds. And of course, our own individual anxieties are exacerbated by the world in which we live. Brexit, the US sabre-rattling, dare I say, and I'm going to be political, but I don't care, an unhinged, most powerful man in the world. The rise of extreme rights in Germany and France. Terrorism. This week, I had my cell group with the two guys that I've been meeting with for 21 years. We pray for each other, look after each other three times a year. And for the first time, one of their, where their children came home from school and said that they'd had their first school lockdown practice, which I understand from 9.30 this morning is happening in all sorts of schools where they have a practice of locking the door and all the kids get under the tables or whatever they do, just in case a shooter comes in or a terrorist comes in. That is what is happening in our schools today. They're in Leafy, Guildford, in Surrey. Lockdown practice. No wonder we are anxious. The first century was full of anxieties for Jesus' disciples, just as the 21st century is full of them today. And therefore, his message to his disciples from Jesus is as relevant to us as it was to them. And I think the message is twofold. It is this. Face the facts and then put first things first. Face the facts and then put first things first. Firstly, face the facts. You see, there are times, I think, when we are anxious that we need to just take a step back and think. See, in this passage, Jesus uses the word consider twice. Verse 24, consider the ravens. Verse 27, consider how the lilies grow. The word there means look, pay attention, think about it, think it out. It's quite hard sometimes to do that when you're anxious. But it's interesting how often in the Psalms you find the psalmist preaching to themselves, telling themselves to do something because they don't feel like doing it. And it's almost, I think, Jesus is saying sometimes you need to preach to yourself. And one of the things you need to say to yourself is, what I'm feeling may not be based on facts. It may not be based on the truth. And I need to take a step back and try to find what is true and real in the situations that I'm facing. 
I think anxiety almost always starts with a mind playing tricks. How many people since I preached this morning have come and said to me, it's in the middle of the night when all of these things are going round and I'm less able to do that stop and think process because I'm tired and, and the stuff just takes over. If you were to ask Fran about the anxiety that I have from time to time, she'll tell you that it's, I come home thinking lies. Uh, you'll know, I've said it before, since we changed the service pattern, my recurring things, I go home and say, I've broken my church, everyone's going to leave. Now you laugh. But that is an inc- it, is an, it becomes an overwhelming, crippling thing for me at times. But Mark Twain said this, I have been anxious about many things, most of which I haven't experienced. And that is true, isn't it? When we get anxious, often our minds fill with uh, little lies. I'm rubbish. I'm useless. This will happen. That will happen. God's not really there. God can't help this situation. And therefore, the first thing I think when facing anxiety is this, to know some things that are true. There are facts, things that are not questionable. And I thought we might just face some facts. Here are some facts on this passage. Fact one, a person's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. That's actually back in verse 15. It sets the context for our passage. You see, it's telling us that life is not defined by what we have, by material things. We can't judge our lives by success or by what we've got. Now, we know that, don't we? But do we live like that? I think a lot of the time we don't, if we're honest. And actually, that fact leads in the passage to two warnings. The first warning actually comes in the bit before, the parable of the rich fool. It is a warning against greed. See, when you judge your life by material things, it can lead to greed. And actually, we need to be very careful of greed. The rich man discovers that uh, by focusing on what he has, he misses the big point, which is that he can never take it with him. And then the unthinkable happens, and it is gone. His life is gone. He has invested in all of this stuff, but in the end, it has counted for nothing in the eternal scheme of things. The end of our passage tells us that uh, the antidote to greed is to be incredibly generous. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that won't wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Greed is a dangerous thing, and there are certain things in life that remind us it's dangerous. Just this week, uh, two members of our church, a couple in our church, I'm not going to say who, some of you will know who, but I'm not going to say who, had all of their savings, all their life savings stolen this week through a scam. And uh, they are a couple who have been going through really tough times, even up to now. Really tough times. Now, I don't know about you, and one or two people have been saying to me things, uh, there is a vicar's discretionary fund. And so if you want, I'd love to just uh, give them a love offering at some point, and it's my intention to do that. If you want to contribute to that in any way, just let David, our treasurer, have some money payable to the PCC, but let's just say, can that go in the vicar's discretionary fund? And I will hand something on to them just to say we love you 
and we're with you. I have no idea how much they've lost, not a clue. But it would just be our way of saying uh, we're with you and we love you. But it's a reminder. Who knows when the thief will come and it's gone. Beware of greed. Secondly, though, be careful of worry. And that's what we're talking about here. Because what it's saying is the root cause of greediness and worry is exactly the same. They both emerge from a failure to trust God. Since life doesn't depend upon stuff, it is a foolish idea to worry about stuff. Because life consists in depending on God, the giver of stuff. And therefore, we should worry about putting our trust in him if we long for that fulfilling life. That is the first fact. Fact two. Worry is a fact of life. I love in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. The reason I say that is it's very easy to read that and think that it's wrong for Christians to worry and therefore to carry a lot of guilt. Or think I'm not a very good Christian if I worry because I'm disobeying what Jesus is saying. I presume that what he's saying, he's saying this to his disciples because they find a lot of the time they're worrying. And note, these are people who spend all day, every day with Jesus. They eat with him, live with him, sleep alongside him. If people who are that close to Jesus can worry, then it ain't surprising we worry, is it? Paul and Peter in the New Testament, Paul in Philippians, Peter in 1 Peter, tell us not to worry about anything. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord. The presumption is that those churches are full of worrying people because life is tough. They're facing some tough issues. You go to the psalmists and they're incredibly honest. They speak a lot about their fear and their anxieties. But what I love there is that also they often get to the hub of the issue. Psalm 56.3, when I do fear, I put my trust in you. What we need to be very careful about when it comes to anxiety is that we do not inadvertently cause guilt to others. By saying, oh, you don't need to feel anxious. God loves you. God's in control. That may be true. But also, people's anxiety is real as well. And we need to acknowledge that. And not expect people to move from fear to confidence too quickly. To sit with them in their anxiety and their fear. Yes, to pray. Yes, to encourage. But not with glib glib, glib, don't worry. Fact three, worry often stops us seeing what is really important. Verse 23, life is more than food and the body more than clothes. I hope Fran doesn't mind me saying this again. I'll try and say it in a slightly different way. I remember when Fran and Pulse, our youth group, Fran's my wife, you, though you don't know, and Pulse came home from Uganda trip. They went, how many years ago now? I can't remember. Three years ago. And, uh, of course, uh, me and the kids were waiting for her to come back. And as she got off the coach and came home, she came out with those words that sent shivers round our households. Things are going to change round here, she said. <laughs> And quite rightly, because Fran and that team had seen things that suddenly brought life into perspective. They spent time in slums. They spent time with street children who had no parents, many of whom were caught in drugs, who had nothing, nothing. 
And quite rightly, Fran came here and found it incredibly hard to be in a big house with loads of stuff, with loads of food. And that was really hard. But it's interesting that after not many years, uh, we're at home at the minute worrying about the carpet choices. We're worrying about the paint colours. We're worrying... Now, all of those things matter, so we've got to get... But actually, there's a danger of losing perspective. We've got a house over our heads. We've got clothes on our back. We've got food in the fridge. Sometimes worry means we lose perspective. And it's worth asking, how important are the things that we're worrying over, really? Are they ultimately important? I think often the answer is no, they're not. Which is why I love that phrase, life is more than, in verse 23. And maybe that's a phrase we ought to try and use more often. Actually, life is more than this stuff. Life is more than this thing that I've become almost obsessed with worry about. Life is more than, isn't it? Fact four, you are the most important thing that God has ever created. Do you believe that? You are the most important thing that God has ever created. He says, consider the ravens, verse 24, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. It's always interesting to me when I, from time to time, look in a newspaper, look in the, uh, you know, where all the wealthy people are leaving their uh, wills, the money in their wills, and where that money tends to go to. Quite often it goes to animal charities. Maybe you give to animal charities. And that's great. Please do not hear me disparage animal charities. But I understand that quite often our animal charities are some of the best supported charities there are compared to human charities. The donkey sanctuary, just look up the amount of people that give to the donkey sanctuary. Now I get that. But Jesus says here, you are infinitely more valuable than birds or donkeys or other animals. Infinitely more valuable. And yet he cares deeply for them, provides for them. Do you not think he will also care deeply for you and provide for you? Fact five. You're right. Often you are powerless. Right. Often you are powerless. Isn't that the cause of much of our anxiety or worry? It's that powerlessness to do anything about the situation that I find myself in. That's what's most scary. When, when we've got the power to do something, then there's a bit of hope. When we've got no power to do anything, that's when despair and anxiety starts to set in. And Jesus is clear. Verse 25 and verse 26. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? He's saying, actually, it's, it's interesting here because you'll see there's a footnote. It's not clear here whether Jesus is talking about height or time. What he's saying is some of you, I'm not looking at you, I promise you, some of you here are short. And he doesn't know how matter how much you want to be a foot taller, there ain't nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Or it may be talking about time. Some of you, the years are going on. You're getting creakier and creakier. You'd love to be a little bit younger so you don't creak so much. Well, I'm sorry, you can do nothing about it. You have zero power in that arena. And actually, acknowledging our powerlessness is okay. Because as we're going to see, fact, 
there is someone who does have power. Someone once said that uh, worry is like revving a car in neutral. It uses up loads of energy, but ultimately gets you nowhere. You're powerless. Fact six. God's commitment to you is absolute. Verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. Now, it's quite hard to do here, to consider the lilies. So rather, I want you to do is this, to consider the entrance of Tesco's. I don't know if any of you go to Tesco's. I'm clearly on a sponsorship deal with them at the moment. But I think it's true of almost every supermarket that I know. What is the first thing you come to when you go through the entrance of most supermarkets these days? It is flowers. What is written on a packet of flowers? Packet, is that the right? I mean, I read the many because I buy so many for Fran in there. Uh, I read it often. (laughs) What is written on the side? Guaranteed for seven days. There's a man who buys flowers for his wife. <laughs> Always check the sell-by date. We want the maximum for our money, don't we? But isn't it interesting? What is the maximum you get for your money? Maybe seven days. Ten, if it's... Yeah, all right, all right. Let's not... This is, was not... I'm making a point here. Shut up. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is this. You buy those flowers, and when you look at them, and it's a bit twee to say it, but it's true. When you look at flowers, the extraordinary intricacy of what you see, they are extraordinarily beautiful. If you go in church now, all the flowers that have been done for harvest, it is stunning. And what this passage is saying, that God has uh, clothed those flowers to look like that in the most extraordinary way, yet he knew they wouldn't last very long. Indeed, it talks here about grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. And what it's saying is that if God is as committed to something that is here today and gone tomorrow, how much more do you think he's committed to you? Do you believe that? It is a fact that he is utterly committed to you. He will invest himself in you. You matter deeply to him. Fact seven. In the end, the root of worry is the absence of trust. In the end, the root of worry is the absence of trust. Verse 28, O you of little faith. You see, when the disciples are worried, what are they saying? What they're saying is, God, we've managed to find a situation that you can't sort out. That's what we're saying, isn't it? We're so clever, we've managed to find a situation that is beyond your ability to deal with. Aren't we clever? And now we're panicking. That's what we're saying. The roots of worry is the absence of trust. Do you remember Jesus out in the boat with the disciples? He's asleep. Storm begins to rage. The disciples wake him up. Don't let us drown. But here is the key. Who do they wake up in the boat? Jesus. That's the answer to every question the vicar asks. Jesus. Now, who do they wake up? They wake up the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's what Colossians tells us, that Jesus, before he came to earth as a baby born in a manger, it was through him that the world was created. Jesus is the one who made it all. And how do we know that? Because he stood up in the boat and he just spoke. To the wind and the waves, he said, be still, 
and there was utter stillness. It comes down to this. Do you believe that there is someone in the boat with you right now? And do you believe that the person in the boat with you right now is the maker of heaven and earth? That as you face illness, bereavement, redundancy, a difficult boss, a relationship breakdown, whatever it is, financial issues, do you believe that the maker of heaven and earth is in it with you? Because this passage says, yes, he is. Face the facts. And then lastly, put first things first. You see, if God cares for you, if he's committed to you, I can feel it going down. If God cares for you, if he is committed to you as much as Jesus is saying here, if these seven facts are true, there is only one thing left to do. That is to commit yourself totally to him. To entrust yourself totally to him. To give yourself 100% to him. It's there in verse 31. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. So often, uh, the problem is that we spend all our time focusing on the stuff we're worried about that we don't think to go to him. Whereas what this is saying is, no, as it were, put the stuff you're worrying about to one side and go and seek King Jesus. Seek his kingdom. Go to the cross of Jesus Christ, where his kingship is most supremely seen. Because on the cross, he, he speaks to us of his unconditional love. His power over evil. Through the resurrection, his power over death itself. And his absolute commitment to us. Seek first the kingdom. And then just watch and see what happens to the stuff. Then you'll see what's going to happen to the stuff. Because this God already loves you. He knows what you need, verse 30. Don't be afraid. He's pleased to give you the kingdom. He gives you all sorts of amazing things that you really need. You see, it's the reverse of what modern psychology and thinking says. See, in this world, when we're anxious, we look around to find help, we realize there's nothing that can help. Then what is the solution? Modern psychology or the world around says, who did it say run to? It says run to somebody. It says seek out the person you can trust. Who is it? Me. That's what the modern world says, doesn't it? It says, uh, the answer's in you. You just need to unlock it. Which is why the world is full of, or books at shops are full of self-help books. Why the YouTube is littered with motivational speakers. And why my Facebook feed is littered with those really annoying memes that tell me lovely little things about thinking positively or what I can do if I do this or do that. That ultimately, it's down to me. I've just got to unlock the potential and the power in me. Yet the problem is, at the depth of my anxiety, I know that I'm rubbish at doing that. I'm powerless. I'm not rubbish as a person, don't even say that, but I'm powerless. I don't have the resources. If it's down to me, I'm stuffed. <laughs> now, what this passage is saying is, I need someone else in the driving seats. I need Jesus Christ in my driving seat. And I need to let him stay in the driving seat. See, too often the problem is that uh, we are all like I am in a real car. 
most of the time, I confess, I end up driving. And uh, when Fran does drive, it doesn't always go well. Uh, probably my most tense... Oh, I think Andy Dunningham has just said something rather dangerous. Mate, you're about to get a real ear bashing at the end. And I, it was funny at all the other services, I've seen a lot of kind of husband and wife looks going on. You know, I can't start pressing the floor and I'm, ooh, ooh, ee, ah. And it's because I don't like not having control. I want control. I want the steering wheel. And here's the reality that that is true spiritually, my guess, for most of us here. We find it really, really hard to put the control of our lives in the hands of Jesus, that we want to keep grabbing the steering wheel and doing it ourselves. Is that not true? Is that not true of all of us? It is true of me. But the, the solution to anxiety, according to this passage, is simple. is to get Jesus back in the driving seat and for us to make sure we're sat firmly in the passenger seats. One man wanted to meet William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. After seeing all the amazing impact that Booth had had on the poor of London. And this man asked Booth one question. What is the secret of your impact and your influence? And as Booth began to reply, tears formed in his eyes. I will tell you what the secret is, said Booth. God has... There have been men with greater brains... Men with greater opportunities from the depth of my heart and a vision of what Christ could do with these men, I made up my mind that God would have all of William there was. God has all the adoration of my heart. God has all the power of my will. God has all the influence of my life. What Jesus is saying to all of us is this, have you made up your minds? Have I made up my minds? Have I resolved that God would have all of me that there is? That he would have all the influence of my life? See, the promise of Jesus here, the promise that we face with our worries is that God is already committed wholeheartedly to caring for you. That is not in doubt. But what he needs from us now is that we might wholeheartedly commit ourselves to him, to trust him with our lives, so that he can begin to actually care for us without us keep trying to grab back the steering wheel. Amen.